Welcome to the Future of Field Service podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Nicastro. I've really enjoyed doing this podcast since we launched in April. Uh, I've always thought that the conversations I'm fortunate enough to have with the service community are my absolute favorite part of what I do. And it's been a real pleasure to be able to share those conversations with you. I realized that since the podcast launched uh, a couple months ago, you may not have had an opportunity to listen to every episode straight through. And so today we are curating the top 10 tips we feel have been shared since the podcast launched in April. So coming at you are 10 clips from different episodes that we feel would have a positive impact on your business. I hope you enjoy. So when you and I talked previously, one of the things that stood out to me about our conversation is, you know, how well Otis seems to get the correlation between happy employees and happy customers. So I was wondering if in your words, you could tell us a bit about how you would describe the relationship between employee engagement and customer experience. Yeah, I think, you know, um, first of all, our, our mechanics, um, you know, they, they're pretty humble and they, they really pride themselves in, in really delivering service excellence to our customers every day. Um, and so, you know, when employees are engaged and, and really energized about what they do, they're, they're going to deliver better service to, to our customers. So, you know, we, we see that when we're actually giving our employees new tools, new ways of working, new processes, that really drive uh, customer satisfaction, it actually drives um, their engagement as well. Yeah, it's really interesting how closely aligned those two things really are. Um, I think sometimes it's easy for companies to overlook the employee satisfaction aspect and and you know be hyper focused on the customer experience. But if you can kind of shift that focus back to your employees, um, you know, it, it really does correlate directly to uh, what your customers are feeling. Um, I love that you described your technicians as treasured resources. I think that word choice in and of itself says a lot about Otis's commitment to its employees. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us what are some of the ways you as a company uh, work to make your field technicians feel treasured, feel valued and appreciated? This is this is deep in our culture, um, you know, what you're describing here. And just, you know, for example, I, I tell our mechanics um, very openly that I work directly for them. Um, they don't work for me. I work for them. And we, we work for them to make sure that they can uh, deliver that service um, to our customers. We're, we're working for them to give them the tools and the processes uh, and the methods to do that. And that's, you know, that is that's in our, you know, our culture and that's in the attitude um, of the company. You know, we do a lot to highlight, you know, their work. Um, their stories, their success stories, how they're satisfying company uh, customers. You know, we do this internally. We do it externally through social media. Um, and of course, you know, we're through our service transformation, we're really investing um, in tools and new processes for them to really improve um, service excellence. You know, my whole career and even today, I, I like to spend a lot of time with our mechanics. Um, 
you know, I'll put on a uniform um, and just, and I'll actually spend the day with a mechanic. And just, you know, just as an example, uh, just a few weeks ago, I was in Jacksonville, Florida, and I spent, you know, a full day riding with a mechanic um, just to really see how they were using the new tools, get their feedback. And, and that's not just me. That's, you know, that's the company. That's how we think. We really truly value mm-hmm. um, our, our technicians because they really are, you know, the face um, of Otis to our customers. Leave us with your words of wisdom for people that um, are listening and have a light bulb going off in terms of, oh, wow, I really, really need to think a little bit harder about how we're doing this. My words of wisdom would be primarily understand what in your field service organization actually makes you successful. So identifying the, the culture, the behavior of your employees um, that make you successful and then making it a making it a, a plan, a program, right? Putting effort into bringing people in that exemplify that behavior. Um, and at the same time, you can't do that blindly without also looking for the elements of your culture that will impede the change that's necessary for us to move into the future. So mm-hmm. I, I don't want it to seem like it's all gloom, right? Like people have their ways and I mean, or it's all flowers, I would uh, to correct that. Um, people have their ways and there are, we do have good employees with bad habits, right? So the other thing, we have good employees who who don't like change and who like for things to stay the same. Um, so we also have to make sure that we identify those cultural elements so that we're not highlighting or exemplifying um, either people or behaviors that are actually oppositional to growth or change or um, or anything that we need to do. But I, I honestly feel like because it, just now that behavior, you know, improved diversity, it's improved morale, it's improved employee satisfaction, like hiring the right people because you understand what actually makes your service organization tick is, I think, the essential key. So if you can you can find the right technical people, you can build apprenticeship programs, you can do all kind of technical training and, you know, become the, you know, become the TED talk of field service and everyone's listening and everyone can be engaged. But if you don't have the right behavior, our customers are going to suffer, our existing employees are going to suffer, and then the, the service organization is, isn't going to be able to sustain. So I really think behavior um, is the key uh, for, for growing um, and sustaining growth in a, in a successful field service organization as we move to the future with acquisitions and technology changes, right? Having the right kind of people that are committed um, you know, willing to willing to, to drop everything and, and to take care of your customers is is going to be essential. And we have to do everything we can to get those people in the door and give people opportunities who have the right heart for service. So moving on to the second misstep is sloppy selection. So really botching uh, the selection of tools. And I love uh, the concept that you wrote about in one of your columns on Future of Field Service, which is the idea of building or ruining your digital reputation. So talk to us a bit about what digital reputation means and how the selection process of the tools you put in place is, is imperative in keeping that a positive thing. First, Thank you for reading my stuff. 
of course. (laughs) And wordsmithing it. I do appreciate that. As a service guy, it's it's nice to have a smart person like you looking at it. So Oh, you're very kind. Your writing is great. It takes very, very little uh, massaging. So, so no problem. Well, I appreciate it. So, um, yes. And so here, here's what I believe. And this is kind of a bold um, statement. It, you know, Maslow had his hierarchy of needs uh, back in the, I think it was back in the 40s. And, and uh, so I, I decided, and I don't know why I felt empowered to do this, but I, I did nonetheless um, decided that there were, uh, you know, four steps of, of the digital hierarchy um, that you needed to achieve and you had to do them in order, similar to Maslow's uh, laws, uh, in order to achieve success in digital transformation and adoption. And, and I'm not going to tell you what the second um, two, the final two are, but the first two because um, you'll have to read uh, the blog on uh, on Sarah's site to uh, to get the other ones, but uh, but the first two are digital reputation, and the second one is contextual computing. And I believe that that folks, if we have a good reputation as humans, um, we attract people and people trust us. It, it's no different than if you have a a good uh, reputation in the digital environment. If people trust the things that you're doing, if they trust that when they hit that button, everything's not going to fail, which is the deepest fear in most people. If they trust that when they put something up in the cloud, that it's going to be there and not um, stolen by somebody else. If they trust that you can secure their data when they're ready to share it, it's able to be shared. But when it wants to be private, it can be private. If people get that trust and they feel it, their adop- your adoption will go through the roof. I, I personally believe that in 2019, that the adoption is 80% resolve. And once people resolve to the fact that they're going to do something, um, then they're on board. And a big part of them coming to that resolution is trust. And, and so I, I think back when I was a CIO for many years and we deployed an application and and we deployed uh, an accounting system. And, you know, an accounting system did our AR, AP, payroll. We kind of called it adoption, but the fact was we we uh, deployed it and uh, we turned it on. The users got in and in three, they complained a little bit because it was changing in a few days. They were using it because it, it was a repeated process. Well, platforms cloud platforms, regardless of the platform that you're choosing, really changed everything. And the reason that they changed everything is because they broke up these components within an application, and uh, I'll call them microservices, that can now be leveraged by numerous applications. So, So a user can go to a cloud platform and be completely overwhelmed by the sea of small applications that exist on the screen in front of them. And so what I've found the best strategy to be when you're talking about choosing the right tool is you got to choose the tool. You got to see yourself in it today, three years from now, and six years from now. You got to understand what the ecosystem is around it. And you absolutely should articulate what are the best practices, what are the things that you plan to achieve from them. I'll I'll give you an example. I need to do sign-off approval. 
I need to do one-on-one meetings. I need to manage meeting content. Whatever it is, they should be small little things that you can achieve with these cloud platforms. And instead of encouraging your communities to think about the application, switch it around and ask them to instead think about what they're trying to achieve and then plug in how they're going to do it in the background. Because I think today people don't give a crap about the application. All they care about is, hey, I need to do automated sign-off approval. How can I do that? Mm-hmm. And so I think you need to change from apps to outcomes. Mm-hmm. Mark, you and I were, t- were chatting um, uh, earlier about an, an earlier episode of, of this podcast. Episode two actually was, was with uh, Roy Dockery from Swisslog. And the whole premise of that episode is, is it's certainly worth listening to, but it's talking about how field service organizations are very accustomed to hiring technicians based on experience. Yep. And that quite frankly, we're running out of that, right? Like you, you have to learn how to hire based on skills and behavioral attributes that, that you know can be effective within your organization and then really train them up. So this is a really good example of a tool companies can use to be able to bring on that less experienced or, or not experienced uh, level of, of talent and, and be able to, you know, feel comfortable and confident uh, deploying that workforce to do the, the job they need to do. So. Um, Absolutely. And I think future. if I just add something here, sorry to interrupt you, um, no, no, but go ahead. it's, it's, it's exactly that. I mean, if we look at today's technology that we use in our in our personal lives, you know, look at look at the the trend curve of utilizing self help technology, instant knowledge. You know, you you want to know something, you you find out within a few mouse clicks of what you need to do and how you need to do it. You know, and I think AR is one of those technology that's that allows you to to really upskill yourself to do anything very fast. And mm-hmm. then we see now the trends of when you look at Google, you look at Microsoft, you look at Apple, they're all heavily invested in the back end into AR technology being integrated into our smart devices. So, so this technology will become, I think, a very predominant way, the way we interact with our environments going forward. So absolutely, bringing that in into our workforce is also a part of how do we keep up with um, – with, with attracting the, the the new talent, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that there was somebody told me that once at a, at a conference about, you know, in my time back then, you know, we had no technology in our private lives, and we got really excited when we got to go to a job that had a computer and we got to play with technology. And but now it's sort of become the other way around in some companies, right? Not everywhere, but in some companies where everybody's used to having great state of the art technology at home. But then you go to the office and you go like, oh, you know, you're not really given the, the tools that you're accustomed to in your private life. So I think yeah. there's an element to that as well, where you see when you're empowering or attracting new talent, yeah, to to work for a company and you're offering them saying, these are the technologies that we will let you use and, and give you the ability to tap into. I think that's also attraction factor for the right talent that you want, you know, to Absolutely. secure that sort of business proposition for tomorrow. And uh, that's very important in today's time. We believe that strongly. Yeah. 
So talking about technology, uh, I know I know you you're leveraging IoT, you're leveraging artificial intelligence. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? How are you leveraging those tools both um, to transform the uh, the service you provide to your customers uh, and and the offerings that you can provide to to the customer base, but then also um, to improve you know your own operation. Okay, so one thing I think that has fundamentally changed is that there is an emerging ecosystem uh, that we can leverage, and that new ecosystem is being used to put together new smart building management systems. What is that new ecosystem? First of all, we have a proliferation of mobile technology. Mobile technology is everywhere. It's invaded our lives. It's pervasive. Second, we have um, the economics of IoT, inexpensive sensors. Um, third, Cloud-based computing now is established. Um, so the platform for IoT is now foundational and pervasive. Second, big data analytics have now come in. So with IBM Watson and machine learning, and then um, our knowledge of how to analyze data allows us to create a system, an emerging ecosystem, allows us to very quickly put up solutions that we never could have done before. Um, the result is, is that now we can um, have a real-time uh, monitoring of critical components, vibration, temperature, humidity, um, leveling, how, how often the car is being used. That's number one. So real-time monitoring of critical components. Number two, that allows us to do what? With a little bit of artificial intelligence and machine learning, proactive problem solving. Number three, it allows us to have a real-time view of the asset performance, and then what's the outcome? So you asked about how do we improve you know, our service operations. The outcome is this. One is that um, our first-time fix rate can be improved by 15 to 25% because when we send a technician out to solve a problem, we're also telling them what the best repair procedure is. Um, through our analytics and diagnostics with Watson, we're also telling them what part to bring. So now the first-time fix rate is, is, is huge because a typical truck roll in North America is a couple hundred bucks. Um, mm -hmm. So that's how we're improving our operation. Uh, the second thing is, is that since we can see um, and predict um, problems, not days ahead of time, but actually weeks we see the trends change. Um, our call-out rate or number of calls to the customer has gone down between, uh, depending on the customer, uh, 10 to 15 percent. So first-time fix rate, 15 to 25. Uh, call-out rate, 10 to 15 percent. And then um, we also are improving our operations by seeing how effective the repair procedures are, and we'll recommend the best one going forward. So um, mm -hmm. those are things, but my favorite um, outcome is the number of hate calls are reduced by 40%. Mm -hmm. I call them hate calls. That's the number of people calling us and yelling <laughs> at us that our, that our service is bad because what we're doing now is when we see those trends, if it's a, a vibration, we're saying, oh, we're probably going to have a governor problem or a motor problem over the next couple of months. At our next call where we have a scheduled visit, they work on that too. So we kill two birds with one stone. Yeah. So, again, we're experiencing a huge amount of mobile data devices in use. We have sensors and IoT connections that allow us to collect that data, and we're using cognitive analytics with applications like IBM Watson to then analyze that data and do what? Prevent a problem before it happens, improve the intelligence of the technician when he gets there, make sure he has the right part, and then what do we end up doing? Improving the customer experience. So the last critical consideration we spoke about is um, thinking about speed to market. 
so, so tell us why that's so important in an outcomes-based service uh, model and how Tetra Pak has sort of handled that feat. Yeah, so I talked earlier that, you know, the, the value chains are transforming and everything is becoming circular, right? Um, you know, circular economies. Uh, so the product at the end of the life cycle actually comes back into the value chain and becomes another product. And, you know, what's interesting is, you know, the pieces of the value chain in that circular economy, you know, they're starting to talk to each other and starting to extract, you know, who can extract the best value out of the value chain? And, you know, with that, speed to market is, is absolutely critical mm -hmm. and absolutely important. Why? Because, you know, technology, again, technology is available. Uh, a lot of technology is available. And, you know, how do you apply the technology? How do you apply the, the technology combined with your knowledge, with your expertise, with the methodologies in such a way that you can extract the best value? out of the value chain and then, you know, deliver that value to your customer. Mm -hmm. So, so this is, this is why uh, speed uh, to market is, is so important. If you don't do it, somebody else is going to come and do it. And, and yeah. that's the spirit, that's the spirit that we have in Tetra Pak. You know, when we develop these new solutions, you know, sometimes, you know, people, you know, when we're driving this kind of change, you know, people come and say, well, you know, it's maybe it's not really, you know, our core, or that's what we should provide, you know, in this situation. And we, we always say, if we don't provide it, someone else is going to come and provide it. Yeah. So then the question becomes, can we provide it? And should we provide it? Mm -hmm. Right? And um, uh, what we have done in this area to, to increase the, the speed to market is we actually um, uh, adopted this uh, lean startup um, methodology, right? So, you know, we have, of course, our traditional you know, product creation uh, and solution creation methodology. But, you know, we're also seeing that in some areas uh, of, uh, of our company where we create these solutions to our customers, it's important to create them in a much faster way and important to get to, you know, this, uh, you know, the, the terminology of minimum viable product, right? So to get, get somewhere where you can test it with the customer, it may not be perfect, okay? And then, you know, we don't strive always for perfection in the beginning, but, you know, we go for a minimum viable product and we test it with specific customer and say, what, what do you think? Does it make sense? You know, sometimes, you know, when we develop, you know, some of the products, uh, dashboards and so on, you know, we may come with, with a mock-up, right? It's not even a real solution yet. It's, it's not, you know, fully connected and so on. And we can say, do you think that this is going to help us improve, you know, productivity in this area if we have that data, that information available to your people on the go, right? Or on the big screens or et cetera. And, and the customer may say yes, right? So, so then that gives us a really good idea. Okay, let's go and then fully develop it, right? Mm -hmm. um, so um, so this, this concept of you know, minimum viable product is, is, is very important. And then that's one of the concepts that is used in, in Lean Startup. Um, you know, what we also have is, is kind of metered funding. That's another concept of, of Lean Startup that we're adopting. So instead of having, you know, ginormous budgets for solution creation and product creation and so on, we actually take it step by step, okay? And we look at, you know, so we give it a little bit of funding. We'll look at what happens out of this. And, and so that becomes like a proof of concept, okay? So we have like a couple of, to give you an example, we have a couple of proofs of concepts right now running with, a couple of partnership companies 
uh, for um, artificial intelligence, right? So for AI, uh, uh, AI-based remote support and what we can do in that area. And so with a very limited way, we're saying, okay, we'll give you a little bit of money, show us in a very simple way, you know, what can be done, what, what does that bring to, to the table, right, um, uh, in terms of value. And if we see that, yes, there is real value in that solution, we give it a little bit more funding. And mm-hmm. we, we develop it further and further and further. And so then that becomes, you know, a full-scale solution that we can industrialize and uh, and uh, um, go and, and offer to our customers. So, so this is a completely new way of working versus a traditional way where you develop, you know, a perfect product, right, with perfect characteristics based on market research. And, you know, you have a lot of you know, consumer data and I think my customers need this and my consumers need that and you know, you, you develop a perfect product and then you go to market with that product. And I think that still has validity, but less and less so. Because again, the markets are just so dynamic that, you know, by the time you're, you know, end up with that perfect product, you may be too late and someone else has already captured the market with something similar. So, so speed, speed to, to market is, is extremely important. If you are focused only on getting applicants, um, you know, you, you may succeed in getting them, but that could ultimately convert into, you know, no real results. Mm -hmm. So, um, what advice do you have for folks listening on what companies need to consider beyond that initial recruiting review, um, and, and things they should be thinking about in terms of really having, you know, long-term success, bringing more women into, into the field service workforce. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can hire 25 women, but if they don't stay at your company, you know, that work really didn't pay off. So mm-hmm. thinking about how to retain women is so important and, and, you know, employee retention as a whole. And I would think about their entire experience. You know, what is different about their experience compared to maybe some of your other team members? And I think that starts with uniforms. On our first day, you know, we give employees a gift bag full of canopy swag and their uniform. Uh, But thinking about a, a female team member, will that uniform fit her? Will it be comfortable? Will she have any obstacles with that uniform where our other team members might not? Um, that's, that's one of the things I would think about. And then also think about her experience, you know, onboarding. Uh, is she, is, does she know where to get the training? Does she know where to find, uh, you know, information about the technology and benefits? I would just think about, you know, what their experience is going to be like, um, and, and think about, you know, your employee experience as a whole, uh, because I think the first few weeks will be very critical for retaining those team members because that's mm-hmm. their first impression. And if they feel uncomfortable or they don't feel like they have a voice to contact, I think it's going to be an obstacle to uh, to keep them on the team. What other advice would you have for folks um, like yourself that are, are running companies in the trades to try to start to, to create a dialogue around this and, and to, you know, kind of rebrand and, and evangelize the field service um, options? Absolutely. Well, 
Um, you know, I've actually thought a lot about this and uh, because it, it's not easy. Let's let's be honest. There's a lot of trades out there that just aren't sexy. Right. I mean, you know, and and I think that was proven by uh, by Mike Rowe and his, uh, you know, dirty jobs and, and this and mm-hmm. that. Um, but I think so. There's a couple of things that can be done. Uh, number one, the transparency of behind the scenes. Uh, we live in a world today where everything is broadcasted. I mean, you know, uh, look at right now where we're on a podcast, uh, you know, all the way across the country. And this is going to be put out for for people all, all over to hear. Um, mm-hmm. But things like this, uh, things like, uh, um, you know, video on on Facebook or YouTube uh, or LinkedIn. You know, there's a, a, a guy I uh, ended up networking, connecting with uh, uh, named Rich, Rich Malachy. He's out of New Jersey and he has basically brought the food service equipment repair industry center stage. And, you know, he, he puts out content every single day, you know, about what it means to be a technician, what it means to, to run a business in, in, in this industry, you know, what it means to, to the, the country and society and the customers, uh, you know, that, that people are there to do these jobs. And I think that, uh, if we keep doing that, you know, business owners like uh, like myself and and Rich, you know, and you, I mean, it's if we keep putting this, you know, out there for people to see, I think we'll be able to see the perception start to shift a little bit in in the right direction because maybe just maybe people will start to say, oh well, you know, maybe it's about a little bit more than just getting dirty, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and busting knuckles. And, you know, maybe, maybe there's more to being a tradesman than, uh, you know, being judged by those around me for not going to college. Mm-hmm. And let me, let me just say this, you know, I know we kind of already started talking about the college thing, but I'm not against college. I want everyone to know right. that I'm not against college. Um, I'm not anti-education. I'm, I'm pro the right education for the right individual so if there's anybody out there listening that's like, oh, listen, listen to this asshole talking about college and how it's terrible, you know, I, I really, I'm, all I'm trying to get across is that it's not the only way to succeed. If somebody knows their, their whole life, they want to be a doctor, they want to be a lawyer, you know, then by all means, go to college and the loans are there for a reason and, and that should be the reason, you know, but if you don't know, then that's what I'm talking about. That's, that's who I'm talking to. Um, so, you know, and then there's, there's other things that I think need to be brought to light too. Uh, and, and that is, you know, all the benefits that come, come with, uh, you know, being in the trades and there's just so many that it's almost impossible that somebody, you know, won't enjoy one aspect of it. I mean, you've got the, the high wages, you've got the, the benefits you've got, you know, and I, I think we're going to talk a little bit more about the intangibles in a bit. Um, but you know, you've got all the intangibles that I, that I talk about in the book too. Okay. So, so diving into the rules, uh, the first rule is to only rebuild or introduce a new operating model when it is absolutely necessary. So tell us, tell us what you mean by that rule and and why it's important. And if you can, some examples of where within today's service landscape changes are indeed necessary. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I mean that um, the need needs to really be 
it needs to be external, right? You, you can't do this driven by personal motivations or, or a simple preference for you as the leader to work a certain way. There has to be a clear external factor which makes this redesign really kind of critical to the business success. And um, I'd say there's, there's three reasons for that. The first up is one of pragmatism, really. Operating model rework is really hard. And like with lots in field, it's doubly hard in a field environment. So, yeah, to be honest, we've just all got better things to do with our lives, I think, than doing a really hard piece of work that's actually unnecessary. Right. The second is it's high risk. By definition, it's disruptive. It's disruptive to the people, to your customers, to uh, the business itself. And therefore, there's got to be enough commercial incentive to do it. So that might be because there's a prize for doing so, a sort of pull factor, or it might be that there's a risk in not doing so. You know, the risk mm -hmm. of doing nothing is greater than the risk of doing something. And, and I think, like, in the transformation we've been doing most recently in, in enterprise, it's it's been that latter case, actually. Um, it's w with this general simplification of the work and the drop in the more technical volumes of more technical work we're doing, it's getting increasingly difficult to compete. So for us, the risk of inaction was actually greater than the risk of action. Mm -hmm. And then um, I think finally, without a really strong reason behind it, you're going to really struggle to sell it to your people, to your customers, to your internal stakeholders. Right? They will sniff it out if it isn't based on good solid um, external motivations, and then it won't work if they don't buy into it. I think, um, yeah, you know, sort of you asked also in there where, where it was um, examples within today's service landscape. So, uh, you know, the many interactions I've had with people working in, in the field arena across loads of different industries and contexts, there's a lot of common drivers for this type of change. Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's perhaps a change in the technology we support, so the, the sort of product we're supporting. So generally, I think what you see is a move towards connected products, and that's lowering the level of technical skill required. Mm -hmm. That's particularly true in the, in the TMT sector. It could be a change in the technology that, that supports us in field, you know, our allocation systems, remote uh, access, diagnostics, AI and augmented reality, mobility, you know, they all open new avenues for, for maximizing the impact of field and or reducing the cost of field. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think there's also an increase in customer experience expectations. So, you know, you hear all leaders talk about that across all industries, all environments, whether that's field, service, sales, anything. You know, we see this leak from uh, from some of the big consumer brands that starts to leak into people's expectations in the business environment too. And so just across the board, you see uh, an exponential growth in customer expectations. Absolutely. Um, demographics, another really common driver I hear about a lot. So particularly for field organizations with a strong engineering element, so TMT, energy, healthcare equipment, you hear a lot about uh, the demographic of the workforce necessitating some degree of change. Mm -hmm. um, and then lastly, the market itself driving a change, you know, changes in price points or regulation, et cetera. 
and yeah, I think if you speak to anyone working in a field environment, a lot of those a lot of those drivers will resonate as you know things they're dealing with and good trigger points for generating uh, an, an operating model redesign. Yeah, that's a really good point. I was just at a conference um, uh, on digital transformation where a lot of the folks that have been successful, um, that was one of the key messages is that you have to overcome the fear of failure. Uh, you know, you really have to know that to, to innovate, to really do something differently, it can't be a completely smooth ride. I mean, there's going to inevitably be bumps in the road. And, and if you have, not only if you fail, if, if you fear that yourself, but if, if you don't give your employees the, the empowerment to not feel scared of failing, um, you know, that, that it becomes very, very difficult to actually innovate successfully. Yeah, I used the word failure. We had to give these like team presentations and I, I just said kind of flippantly, I was like, yeah, we all failed at that. And I could feel this collective like tightening like in the group because this group wasn't familiar or comfortable with that. And for me, I was like, oh, it was, wasn't a thing. And I was like, because I was getting onto, and here's what we learned from the fact that we all failed. And I think, you know, if you go back to purpose, and this is one of the interesting things about sort of change makers, often because they're so purpose driven and they care so much about what they're doing, that there actually is almost more of an intensity about failure because it's like, well, the stakes are really high. This isn't just about closing this one deal. This is more meaningful to me than this. And so then your sense of self-identity and self-worth can get wrapped up in those failures. So if we go back to creating a space and openness for you know reflection, um, it gives you some of that distance to say, nope, that was just that failure and I'm going to get back at it because it is so important for me to continue to tackle it. <laughs> 